What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. All this hiding, all this preparation, it was for nothing. I mean, it took priority over your family. It cost you your family. If the way I raised your mother means that she hates me, but that she's prepared for the horrors of this world, then I can live with that. That's Jamie Lee Curtis sounding a little like Sarah Connor circa Terminator 2 in Halloween, the latest sequel to John Carpenter's 1978 horror classic. The new one is the 11th film in the Halloween franchise, allegedly. I'm not really buying it. And the sixth one to feature Curtis. This week on the show, a review of the new Halloween, along with a Sacred Cow review of the Carpenter original. One I badly needed to take another look at. I have no idea why you would say that, Mr. One of Only Four Negative Reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Things on the internet never die, sort of like Michael Myers. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. And happy early Halloween. It has become kind of a tradition at this point to devote one of our October shows to a sacred cow review of a horror classic. These are movies that we've seen before and most people think are classics or pretty close and we revisit them to see if they still hold up. Over the years we've done The Shining, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Exorcist, Night of the Living Dead, and Sam Raimi's original Evil Dead. It's also not uncommon for one of us to buck conventional opinion during these reviews and question the classic status of one of these films. Yeah, I was not willing to give Sacred Cow status to The Exorcist. Still hurts. Or Evil Dead. Doesn't but hurt as much. You've, you've had your issues too. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, didn't go for it. No, not really. We will see where we fall on 1978's Halloween and see if one of us has a change of heart. That film, of course, directed by John Carpenter. The new sequel, also called Halloween, comes to theaters this weekend. It's directed by David Gordon Green. Green's involvement was probably one of the most intriguing elements for us to this sequel. I mean, look at the stuff that he's done throughout his career, beginning as an indie auteur, George Washington, All the Real Girls, Joe with Nicolas Cage, and Prince Avalanche. I believe we reviewed both of those Mm -hmm. on this show. And then last year, he got a lot of praise for one that we both missed, Adam, Stronger. That was with Jake Gyllenhaal. He's also been something of a mainstream comedy director, if you consider The Pineapple Express, The Sitter, and Your Highness. Do we have to? Well, Pineapple Express has its moments. Your Highness does not. And then, of course, now he has this new Halloween, which curiously also was co-written not only by Green, but his regular partner in crime, comedian Danny McBride. That's right. We will have some thoughts on that new Halloween a bit later in the show. But first, back to 1978, when the slasher film didn't really exist. Then came John Carpenter's Halloween. Let's get this out of the way right at the start, Adam. I've seen the jack-o'-lantern light. Last week, you teased this episode by pointing out I was one of four critics on Rotten Tomatoes who had not given 1978's Halloween a fresh rating. That did not put me in good company. For the record, it's Sam who really likes to bring that up. (laughs) I know. Our producer. Well, Roger Ebert was not one of those four because his four-star review called Halloween an absolutely merciless thriller, and he even compared it to Psycho. In a 2014 Rolling Stone readers poll asking about the best horror movies of all time, Halloween placed fourth. The movie is so revered, it even currently has its own limited-run podcast, Halloween Unmasked, hosted by the wonderful critic Amy Nicholson. Part critical assessment and part oral history, the series recounts how director John Carpenter's third film, which he co-wrote with producer Deborah Hill, became an unexpected hit and the fountainhead for countless slasher flicks in which a psychotic killer slices his way through horny teenagers only to be thwarted by the virginal heroine in the end. That heroine here in Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode, the matronly high school babysitter stalked by masked maniac Michael Myers, who has returned to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he murdered his own teenage sister 15 years earlier when he was just six. My dismissal of Halloween after seeing it for the first time some 10 years ago was partly just me doing a bad job of movie criticism, Adam. I wasn't watching carefully enough, and I was not giving the movie the benefit of the doubt. 
One thing I didn't give enough thought and attention to is Halloween's place in the sex equals death genre of horror. I lumped the movie in with Friday the 13th and wrote it off as at once puerile and puritanical in the way it eagerly punished Laurie's promiscuous friends while rewarding her with survival. Paying more attention to that theme this time around, Adam, I've got a different take. But first, I want to hear yours. When did Halloween first scare you? Does it still scare you today? And what do you make of its sexual politics, especially in a contemporary, horror-aware movie world that recognizes Laurie Strode as the original final girl? Hmm. No, it didn't really scare me this time, for whatever that's worth. And thinking back to the last time it was discussed here on the show, though discussed I'm going to use that term loosely because Sam and I, we talked about Halloween as part of our horror movie marathon. It was the second marathon we'd ever done on the show. This is back in 2005. Is this the one Suspiria was a part of as well? Exactly. Okay. And I think we had talked about Suspiria just before this review of Halloween. Again, I'll use the term review loosely because I did revisit this. And it was the only film in the marathon that I was already familiar with, but Sam wasn't. At least I think I was. I grew up seeing Halloween on all the time, and I felt like I had seen so many parts of it that I really knew the film. Sam didn't feel like he knew it at all, so we included it in the marathon. And for me, watching it 13 years ago now, it felt like... I was seeing something pretty miraculous, and actually I'd say I did my own bad job of criticism in 05 because we spent about nine minutes on it and really didn't get into any of the substance of the movie. And in fact, at one point I said, well, Carpenter's not saying anything profound here, and I basically just chalked it all up to style. But I was so enthusiastic, I was entranced by the filmmaking, those tracking shots and the soundtrack and just Carpenter's control and his craft, and this time... I maybe wasn't as surprised or taken off guard by that and was more aware, I think, of some of the absurdities of the script, which isn't uncommon in the horror genre. Of course, now I can intellectualize it a lot more. I have a lot more to say about the film. We'll see if there's any substance behind it. But that question about final girls and where this movie kind of stacks up in that discussion is a really fascinating one to me. I'm far from an expert on this, but you said it in the tease. Slasher films didn't really exist before John Carpenter. I'm sure someone can write in and say, well, this could work or whatever. But generally speaking, people look to the films of the 70s and 80s, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, definitely before Halloween. But I feel like Laurie Strode has to be the final girl, doesn't she? And whether or not she was, in fact, the first... I know the term came from the Carol Clover book that focused on those 70s and 80s slasher films. I think Halloween has to be the biggest one of those. And even though I haven't read it, Josh, my understanding is it takes a feminist approach to gender in these slasher films and argues that while these movies start out offering the perspective of the male killer, and we certainly get that in Carpenter's Halloween, right, with that fantastic opening that all takes place from the viewpoint of the young Michael Myers, even when he puts the mask on, we watch the murder of his sister play out through the eye holes of the mask. And then these films end with a perspective shifting to that of the female victim who ultimately wins. And of course, as an example, I'm sure there are many others we could point to when Laurie is hiding in the closet upstairs, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. We watch Michael from her viewpoint as he busts through those closet doors. We are hiding in the closet with her. So that shift is definitely there. Now, the counterpoint surely is that it's hard to reconcile as feminists the notion that promiscuity is bad, that these young women in any way deserve to be punished, to die because of their sexual transgressions. And this movie probably does fit into that scheme. But where I think Halloween is still relevant and maybe set a standard that all of the copycats didn't fully follow is that this movie seemed to me on this watch, something I didn't tap into at all, frankly, 13 years ago. This movie is fundamentally about the concept of sexual transgression and about the concept of good versus evil and good girls versus bad girls and even good boys versus bad boys. I think the most famous line in the movie is probably the one where we have Donald Pleasance as the doctor, Sam Loomis, say that he had the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. He believes that wholeheartedly and no one else sees it or is willing to see it. But I think even we see in that opening shot of Michael when his parents come home, there's at least a suggestion of, 
I don't know that you can say he's a victim in this, but it's as if he suffered some kind of trauma as well. And that look on his face of a six-year-old boy, it certainly suggests innocence, though, of course, we saw it all play out and know there was nothing innocent about it as he holds that knife with blood on it. But I think what really emerged this time was not just the talking to and about Lori Strode to Lori often and her propriety and her purity, but even the way she personally seems to wrestle with it. There's really a key moment, I think, when she admits that she's attracted to Ben Tramer, right? And then when she essentially retracts that, and I love that we get, there's at least two of them in the film, maybe more, these asides to herself, where she actually talks to herself and reassures herself that she really is a good girl. She makes a bet with her friend Annie, the one who reached out to Ben. She says, if you watch her, I'll consider talking to Ben Tramer in the morning and basically saying, oh, I didn't mean it. She doesn't really like you that way. Is it a deal? And Lori says to herself, after her friend leaves, the old Girl Scout comes Uh through again, right? So for me, it's less about a filmmaker. And let's point out, too, written by Deborah Mm -hmm. Hill, the screenplay, and produced by Deborah Hill along with Carpenter, it's less about making these black and white delineations between moral and immoral and genuinely wanting to explore some of that gray area, I think specifically as it relates to repression. Yes, 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 yes. These are the distinctions that I missed the first time around. I did, too. your thoughts about perspective were crucial for me as well. Whose eyes were seeing this movie through? I think for the The first time I saw it, and I could be excused for this because of that opening tracking shot, which, as you mentioned, literally gives us Michael's perspective. Okay, I was seeing this entire movie through his eyes. So um, as this punisher of sin, Mm -hmm. and it turns out that Halloween, I think, is less interested in his psychology, even though there's a lot of nonsense talk about it from Loomis uh, in this Revisit. I almost could have put those segments aside entirely. Um, we get talk about his psychology, but I think the movie is really interested in Laurie Strode's and the fact that, as you said, she's deeply conflicted about sex. Yes. And if you see it that way, then Michael Myers is more of a metaphorical representation of her curiosity slash fear than he is an actual killer. Mm -hmm. And here are the other clues that made me really able to latch onto this and appreciate Halloween in a different way. It's that he's given a metaphysical presence by Carpenter and cinematographer Dean Cundy in the way that they film him in bright daylight so Mm -hmm. often. He's just brazenly standing there in that mask. Yes, it's Halloween, so maybe someone could excuse that. Um, But really often, he's by himself, and people would notice. But they film him as if only Laurie can see him. As if he knows that he's just in her head. And I think sometimes we at least have to question whether or not she is truly seeing things. Yes, The movie suggests it could be either. Yep. I think about the way he disappears repeatedly. He he just vanishes, Mm -hmm. right? So he has this metaphysical presence. And the other thing that struck me, it's just a tiny detail, but I described uh, in the opening Laurie as matronly. And she certainly has the clothes. I think she even mentioned something about JCPenney at one point. Um, Different from her friends, okay? Not drastically, but a little bit different. There is that moment when she's babysitting and she puts on the apron and she's, I think, carving the pumpkin, right? And she seems perfectly at home. It helps that Jamie Lee Curtis at even 19, I think it is, looks about 35. Yeah, way older. I said that to my wife. She looks like she's 27. I looked it up with shock that she was 19. Yeah, exactly. And so when she puts on that apron and is in the kitchen just carving the pumpkin, she seems pretty happy. And it's almost as if she's found a way in her head to skip the whole sex thing and jump right to motherhood. Yeah. Right? Just having that domestic role. Not that that's exactly what she wants, but it's part of the conflict. She wants that guy she has a crush on, um, but she's not entirely sure about it. I think this is why Curtis's performance is so great, is she captures that conflicted feeling of wanting something that you're not even sure you want. And we see that in the performance throughout the movie. So we've got her wearing that outfit, but notice in the climax when she does go to the house towards the final confrontation with Michael, it's nothing too extreme, but she's in a blouse. Mm -hmm. It's unbuttoned more than it was before. It's clearly the most sexual thing that she's worn in the entire film. And the costume design is that way for that final confrontation. So I just think that for me in this whole scheme of uh, the Amy Nicholson podcast has talked about the final girl element too. And there's a great episode devoted entirely to that. And she, she really makes the push for this being 
extremely distinct from something like Friday the 13th. And mm-hmm. I think it is. I think there are crucial differences in how the camera is looking at the characters, how it portrays the violence. Um, I do think there's still some elements that put it maybe a little bit closer than some people might argue. Sure. But if you look at this through Laurie's psychology, it all falls into place pretty nicely for me. I agree, obviously. And really, I was struck, Josh, by how much I thought about the movie It Follows recently. And I think Carpenter's film came up for a lot of people in conjunction with that movie. You think about the opening of that film and its own kind of tracking shot through a suburban neighborhood. But I didn't make the connection at all then to this more metaphorical notion of the villain or what is haunting and traumatizing these young women. I think there is absolutely a connection there and can see these movies as a double feature. I think what's also fascinating to me is the way the whole question of gender and morality connects to what I think Carpenter is maybe really most interested in doing. He does want to scare us on a visceral level. There's no doubt about it. And even though I said it didn't really scare me, there were obviously still some chills and some thrills and some gotcha kind of moments. But Mike Myers at this age doesn't have that same kind of creepy effect he had on me, certainly when I was a kid and I would go by this movie on TV. But beyond just trying to scare us in that way, I think what he realizes is what's more terrifying is being forced to confront how everything you've always accepted as true and good, especially in a small, seemingly idyllic community like Haddonfield, people project it that way. We hear a couple different times. It looks that way to us. All that stuff might actually be false and bad. Think about how many times we do get that notion brought up of the boogeyman. And Tommy, the little boy that she's babysitting, says, Lori, what's the boogeyman at one point? And she says, there's no such thing. This whole movie is this kind of dawning, this acknowledgement that these fears exist. If we want to tie him back directly to sex, I think we certainly can watching this movie. But what's crucial, I think, for me, Josh, isn't that Lori survives because she's the only virgin in the movie. It's that she's the only virgin and she almost doesn't survive, despite all of the right choices she makes, right? She worries about her chemistry book. She's the only one who cares about that. She thinks about her grades more than boys. She's paying attention to the kids, actually, as a babysitter instead of neglecting them. And guess what? Michael still goes after her and almost gets her. There's another detail you just reminded me of that speaks to this being an inner struggle for Lori is the fact that you're right. She doesn't really win in the end. It's Loomis. It's Loomis. It's Loomis. The psychologist, because you could view this as being a psychological problem for mm-hmm. her. So you need the doctor to come in and solve things at the end. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And just to jump back to It Follows quickly, I think that might have made my top 10 in that year. And uh, it's precisely because it shares in, yes, some of the aesthetics, but also this idea of sex having a metaphysical presence. Okay, mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not necessarily a good, bad thing, a black, white thing, but it's that it's something that is meaningful and, uh, you know, yeah. will follow you around. Uh, and I think you get that. It's a little different angle on it in It Follows uh, than what we've got here in Halloween, but definitely a point of connection between them. I think about that suburban aspect, too, in relation to how absent the adults are here. The Just empty think about streets how, are such a great Exactly, touch. how empty the streets yeah. are. Even when they're downtown, except for a small group that maybe collects after the break-in to the hardware store yeah. or whatever, there really isn't anyone around. And it leaves you always thinking about what's going on behind those doors. Yeah. And this movie yeah. kind of shows us what's going on behind some of those doors. So we either have adults who are not present Or the only way they're present is when they're leaving their kids behind and going out to do God knows what. And the ones who are there are so ineffectual. I think even of the sheriff, who is appropriately named here Lee Brackett, I think we have to at least acknowledge something else that would have been lost on me 13 years ago, is that Carpenter is a huge Howard Hawks fan. Assault on Precinct 13 is basically a remake of Rio Bravo. The thing which he makes a few years later, right? Yeah, on the TV. It's on the TV. So many movie references. Multiple houses. And Lee Brackett, one of the writers of The Big Sleep, which Howard Hawks directed. So that's the name of the sheriff, the father of Annie, one of the friends who is murdered. He really can't do anything at all to stop any of this insanity and horror that's going on. I think that, too, is one of those things you just accept growing up in a town like this is that, well, the law is here to protect us. And actually, not only do they not really protect anyone here, but the law is what allows Mike Myers to get away in the first place, right? And so that has to be at least considered. But one aspect to me, Josh, that 
I initially this time was watching thinking, maybe this is actually kind of bad screenwriting. The way they have Donald Pleasance seem to know what to do. No one will listen to him, but he knows where Michael's going. And he's smart. He's certainly smart to go to the house and know that's going to be a focal point for Michael. And so you could make the case that he's right to just hang out there and wait for him to come back. But then when you think about it in relation to everything else that's going on in the film, and again, how ineffectual all the authority figures are, I want to give Deborah Hill and Carpenter the credit to work that in where the one guy who seems to know what's really at stake here, even he, why all these people are being slaughtered is just three blocks down, hanging out, scaring poor little kids who are going up on the porch. Like that's kind of the joke here is it's yet another adult, yet another authority figure who can't do anything. Yes, to be generous, you could describe it that way. His explanation for why he's there, though, is so ridiculous. I think you could also say Halloween is a fountainhead for horror movies where the characters make really bad decisions. For sure. Because you do get a lot of that. Just to jump quickly back to the your observation about it being this idyllic suburban setting that is then upended. Um, And it may have been a budget issue. You know, there's not going to be a lot of extras on the streets, but that eeriness is so effective. And I happen to be just the other day, um, you know, we're in the Midwest. My town is a little Haddonfield-like. And we walked the dog up to the library. Debbie went in to drop something off at the library. I just sat on the bench, sitting there for a few minutes. Beautiful fall day, looking around. Nobody, there's not a soul around. Really? This is like 4.30. And I'm instantly transported back to the streets on Halloween because it, it is such an effective uh, way of capturing that town. Yeah. So what else is crucial and we have to spend time on is the score. Of course, Carpenter's mm. score. And it is... It's this, it's a needling piano. I mean, everyone knows, the people are hearing it now in, in, in their ears, so I don't need to describe it, but it just strikes me as this needling piano, um, a, a stabbing synthesizer, and it almost enters in your spine. It does. Those sounds, they, they bypass your ears. And the way the movie employs it as well, it, it's not, it doesn't strike me as it's always for jump scares or at the most frightening moments. It's this constant background. Yeah. And, and there's something constant, you're right. effective about just having, especially a contrast with these idyllic suburban streets, right? Things may look nice, but why are we hearing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of dread that you have in the film is is just, uh, it sustains itself throughout. Doesn't yeah. give you a chance to relax. No, I like the variations on it sometimes that we get. The fact that it's in 5-4 is one of the aspects of it, actually. The time signature of it, it's just a little bit off. It's this repetitive pattern, but just like things are amiss in the streets of Haddonfield and behind these closed doors, there's something just a little bit off that whether you recognize the time signature or not, I think you never really get fully into the rhythm of the music, and I think Carpenter is certainly playing around with it. And I like how in some scenes, think about what has to be one of the best shots in the film, where Lori thinks that she has dispatched Michael Myers, and we are seeing her in the foreground just as over her shoulder in the background, Michael gets up. Carpenter doesn't hesitate to have the music cue us before Michael even sits up. And it's still effective, and not only that, it's probably more effective somehow that the music always just seems to be that thing that's just a little bit of a warning to us that something scary is about to happen, but I think that just heightens it rather than take any of the suspense away. All right, so you're mentioning how he gets back up at that one moment. Can we get to a few of my quibbles that I still am going to stand by? A lot of them have to do with that climactic sequence. There's the brilliant shot of her terrified against the wall and he emerges from the closet, from the darkness. And that, you know, it's it's just, it's like having your, your inner fears, your psychological fears just slowly creeping up on you. Love that shot. But there are still so many times where she's just so easily in his grasp and he does make that move toward that lunge that's completely off base. There are the multiple times that she, a really smart kid, as you've described, will like not pick up the knife, not just leave the house, you know, just assume that that he's dead. And so that gets a little frustrating, although. I will say, if I'm going to read this as all going on in her head, maybe I can also be generous about the clumsy ending and saying that if he's just a manifestation, there's going to be more of this back and forth. Well, you know? it can't all be going on in her head because we just saw Halloween 40, Josh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which I know we have to spend a little bit of time on later. All right. Before we go, can I make you a sacred cow pantheon trade? Let's hear it. I, I will 
willingly, happily say that Halloween should go in the Pantheon. Okay. But then you got to give me Lost in Translation. You know what? I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think I'd rather have Lost in Translation in the Pantheon instead of Halloween. Really? Yeah. So you all must these... have You must have a few more quibbles that you haven't shared yet. I have some of the same quibbles as you, but I think the biggest one for me, and I do think it goes back to not having that kind of surprise at just how exciting the filmmaking was this time around. And instead, what I was really paying attention to, and I respect Carpenter for this, I'm going to praise him and then I'm going to backtrack from it here a little bit. But if you think about the line in the film where Loomis is talking about Michael and he says he's inhumanly patient. And I really did make a note of that because I think it sums up Carpenter and the way he approaches this film. If you go back to the very beginning, yes, it opens with a murder, but think about how drawn out even that is, how much time we take seeing the world through Michael's eyes across the street, coming across the street, going around the house, through the house, up the stairs. The next person who gets killed on screen in the movie it's what, about an 86-minute movie? Yeah, it sounds right. Do you remember when we see another person get killed on screen in the film? <sighs> Is it her friend in the garage? Yeah. Yeah. That's... At what point, roughly, how far into the film? Give me a minute. Oh, man, that's got to be 40 minutes in? It's almost at the 55-minute be- Yeah, mark. I believe it. Yeah. So that surprised me again, too. It is such a but slow none, burn. A slow burn, right. None of that earlier stuff is dull or boring because we've got the music, we've got him appearing, and, and we have, as we talked about, Lori's the character building that's been going on. This time, it wore me out. No! The slow burn just wore me down a little just, bit. It just because you knew what was coming? Maybe it did, but... Here's the thing. I didn't really feel like I knew what was coming. It's been 13 years since I've seen Halloween. I didn't remember Annie dying in the garage. I didn't remember the way any of the other characters died, quite frankly. So that still was new to me. But how drawn out it was, rather than really building the suspense, it was something intellectually I responded to appreciating what Carpenter was after, but it didn't actually draw me in more. Now, one thing that I have been thinking about, Josh, that I'd love to hear your thought on is why do we get that whole scenario with Michael and the murder of the PJ Souls character, Linda, is that her name, who is having sex with Bob up in the bedroom, and then it's Lori who comes across the street and she finds her two friends and the boyfriend, and she finds one of them, Annie, actually laid out on the bed with the tombstone, the headstone of Judith Myers behind her. What did you make of all that? Why is that ceremony playing out that way? Well, so see, this is playing into my original reading of it, where Michael Myers is the punisher of promiscuous sex, Mm -hmm. okay? And so he sees his sister doing this or knows that she's doing that, and he kills her. And when he comes back and gets out, he goes after people doing the exact same thing. The curiosity to that is, what's his fixation on Lori? Why didn't he pick her friends first? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer well, to that. Well, I think but the I answer think... is because he is mostly an indiscriminate killer. <laughs> he is a but, psychopath. But, he's, but not in this movie. He's selecting specific targets for specific reasons in Halloween 78. Yes, though there are cases like the dead body we see where to he get the leaves jumpsuit. it by the side of the road. Yeah, because to get the jumpsuit. He, he, he wants – he just needs the car. Sure. So he's not yeah. out just to punish those women. But there clearly is some kind of fixation where when he sees Lori come up to the porch step, yeah. he does equate her to his sister. Yes. Clearly, right? Yes. But I think I bring it up only because something that just occurred to me here at the last minute tonight is that I read that whole thing as some kind of weird ritual where he obviously went – to the gravesite right. to get that. He obviously went back to his old house. He's still haunted by this or whatever word you want to use. So this was all about what's going on in Michael's own head that yes. he had this ceremony. And it only occurs to me now that actually it's just him really tormenting her, that it probably had nothing to do with him. He didn't need to lay her out on the bed that way with that tombstone, but he basically put on a show. Oh, it's definitely staged. He put on a show for Lori and waited for her to come into the room and encounter those things one by one, like a director almost. He staged a scene and then waited for her because he's in the room just waiting for her to be horrified to then attack her. He could have killed her, but he set that whole thing up. I don't know. That just never occurred to me on previous Or is he just staging it for himself? I mean, uh, that's that's another reading of it. Yeah. 
the movie I could suppose. go. The movie, the movie could but go. But he either watches. Way. He watches her be Come terrified. In and yeah, that's true. So I thought I thought one of your quibbles was going to be um, the ghost sheet scene. It's not a quibble because I think it's effing hilarious. Oh, come on. No. So I, off tone for yes, everything else going on. For mostly everything that's going on. So ridiculous. And, and I think that's why I actually respond to it. The audacity of Mike Myers. And actually, Josh, it goes back to what yeah, why does I he just do that? got done What's saying. the psychology there? Because the he's, same he's, thing. he's playing he's Haunted toy- House. He's toying with them. He's actually not just murdering them right but taunting them right he's putting on another show for well her. and that that also fits into the infamous head tilt after he's murdered the boyfriend and he's hanging against the cabinetry and he pauses there exactly. to kind of admire yeah admire the handiwork yeah i guess i'm i'm less interested in all that because it doesn't quite fit as nicely into my uh my theory about this being inside laurie's head but <laughs> sure i'll give it to you i think the movie can still be absolutely about repression and everything that she's struggling with and being forced to confront without it being imaginary. Yeah, her manifestation of her fear of sex is just uh, really diabolical. There you go. Halloween is available to rent or stream on most platforms, or you can get it at your local library. I hear free rentals for all babysitters. <laughs> if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Please, Halloween fans, focus on all the nice things I said and not on how I said Lost translation belongs in the Pantheon more. Oh, you're going to get it. I'm going to talk to Sam. Maybe he can maybe he can edit that out. There might nope, still be time, too Josh. Since the new Halloween ignores all the sequels to the original, we're going to do that too. And we're just going to jump right to our review of David Gordon Green's installment. We'll have that when we come back, along with results and listener feedback to the current film spotting poll, pitting Halloween 18 versus Suspiria. Stay with us. Decor. Three days ago, my son Bailey was taken by wolves. No one in the village will hunt them. My husband will come home from the war soon. I must have something to show him. That's Riley Keough in the trailer for Jeremy Sonier's Hold the Dark a thriller set in wintry Alaska starring Jeffrey Wright as a wolf expert called in to help explain a rash of wolf attacks in a remote village. I mean, that sounds intriguing. Sonia, great director behind Green Room and our 2014 Golden Brick winner, Blue Ruin. Josh, you have seen it without giving anything away. Should I be curious about this film? Well, it it is a curiosity. I mean, there's definitely touches of his other films in here. You can see that it is in some ways very much a Sonia film, but man, it goes in some different directions too. Feels different in a lot of ways. So I do hope you're able to squeeze it in and we can talk about it. Hold the Dark debuted on Netflix at the end of September, and it's one of a handful of compelling new releases on Netflix recently. Our plan for next week's show is to discuss a few of them, and Josh has been... So studious lately. He's been watching a lot of films. You have already seen Hold the Dark. You have not seen yet Private Life, the new one from the director of The Savages, Tamara Jenkins. Is that true, Josh? I have not. That's the one I want to get to next. I definitely want to see that, starring Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti as a couple in their 40s trying to have a child. Nicole Halfsoner, I know you're a big fan, Josh, and I certainly loved Enough Said, one of my favorite films of that year. She also made Lovely and Amazing and Friends with Money. She has a new one on Netflix, starring Ben Mendelsohn called The Land of Steady Habits. And one more we're going to throw into the mix is from Captain Phillips and United 93 director Paul Greengrass. He's on Netflix now, too. He's made kind of a career out of bringing national trauma to the screen and doing that with 22 July. This is about the right-wing terrorist who killed 77 young people at a Norwegian camp in July 2011. This one getting a 69 on Metacritic. So we'll see if we can fit that in as well. Busy show next week. Explain my psychology here. Why is it that I loved Bloody Sunday and I loved United 93? 
but have absolutely no desire to watch 22 July. I just, I, I don't I think I'm ready. You're I don't, asking I don't me to get inside right of your head? Yeah. Well, so how, yes, you're reliving trauma in a way, right? Not reliving yes. it because clearly this isn't I something even we it, but... experienced as a nation taking place in Norway, but those are heavy watches, right? Mm-hmm. You know it's going to be a heavy watch of some kind, so maybe that's it. Is there a laugh in here somewhere? Well, I was just going to say, habits? hold the dark. Is Hollifson going to give me a laugh? <laughs> I don't know. Hold the dark, I can tell you, is not an easy watch either. So yeah, this is uh, some heavy lifting we've got to do. You're really selling them, Josh. If you want to participate, if you have Netflix, you can check out all of those films. Now we do plan to discuss at least a couple of them next week. 22 July, probably going to go on the back burner, but those are all four in the mix. Also next week, Josh will have a take on the new one from Marielle Heller. It's called Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy. Heller directed 2015's Diary of a Teenage Girl. Hey, Melissa McCarthy, but I'm, I'm afraid this is mostly about sadness and loneliness. So. Wonderful. And you know <laughs> what? piling on here. I'm not going to bring anything back up as far as the excitement level. When I talk briefly about the new documentary from Frederick Wiseman called Monrovia, Indiana. Laugh a minute. There's, there's no trauma, really, that I can recall. But yeah, there are no laughs in Monrovia, Indiana. I did manage to see that a week or so ago, and we'll have a few thoughts. If you've seen any of these films and want to weigh in, please do so. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. And we're going to give you a chance to see Can You Ever Forgive Me over at filmspotting.net slash events. You can find advanced screening and run of engagement passes. We have those for Heller's film and admit to pass to a Monday, October 22 advanced screening of the film. Can You Ever Forgive Me is opening on the 26th. So again, if you want to get a chance to win those passes, go over to filmspotting.net slash events. We also wanted to do another plug for the Film Spotting newsletter, three editions out so far. One of the new touches this week was from Scribble to Soundbite, which really does have to mostly be a Josh-focused feature because I am bad at taking notes. You're not necessarily legible no, with your taking say, notes, but is... you do it. Yeah, I, I do every it. Time. If anyone can decipher it, including myself, it's a miracle. Hey, you always ask for pen and paper. I, I do. I'm impressed and by that. I stare at the screen. <laughs> you just never. It just makes never me feel it. more professional. Someone, as far as the newsletter goes, we should also mention someone. I think it was on Twitter asked if they could see. This is how popular the newsletter has become, uh-huh. Adam. Someone asked, "I just signed up. How can I get the previous installment?" Oh, I got that email too. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't an email. Okay. I got an email. I didn't I realize did. there's a place you can do. Yeah, that, I right? shared that with that listener. Perfect. But I have not yet figured out a place to put it on our website. Okay. But if you want to see the archive of newsletters, we'll figure that out and we'll share those details when we have it. If you want to subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter, you can find that sign up box on the main page of filmspotting.net or it's probably easier to find if you go to our episodes page. Now, I can get at least 100 more people to sign up right now, Josh. All I got to do is give them a little tease. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. You know this is coming because we've been oh, yeah. talking about oh, it in our yeah. Slack. This will be worth the it. The only way you can find out the name of Sam Van Halgren's new dog. <laughs> and if you're a cinephile, you will love it. The only way you can find out is by subscribing to the Film Spotting newsletter. Possibly the greatest dog name ever. I can't wait next summer when we're in Spring Green to hear Sam calling that name out the backyard. Uh, hey, one other note here. If anyone in Austin wants to get together for a Film Spotting meetup a little bit last minute, but I'm going to be there for work purposes on November 2 and 3, I know that we have listeners in Austin or in the area. So uh, just let me know on social media, Larson on film or email us feedback at filmspotting.net. And if we can get a group together for either November two or three, we'll set some more details and definitely let people know. I'm not happy about you going to Austin without me. Have you done frankly. a meetup there Have you been before? to Austin Never before? been to Austin. I See, can't that's wait. The thing. I've never been to Austin oh. either. And honestly, I really feel like it's the next major American city that I need to see. It's my biggest regret right now that I've never been to Austin. All right. I'll let you know if your instinct is right. Okay. One more quick note here. Chosen Custody of the Eyes for Chicago area listeners. Wanted to let you know it's going to be at University of Chicago's Doc Films on October 27. This is a golden brick 
candidate this year. It's the documentary that's really, really made in the transcendental style, both in form and subject. It consists largely of footage that's captured by a young woman during her early days as a cloistered contemplative nun in Rockford, Illinois. So I enjoyed it quite a bit and would encourage those of you. It's hard to find, hard to get to. Yeah. So it was exciting to see that it's coming back to Chicago for a run on October 27th. Yeah, this one really intrigued me when you recommended it back a few months ago and also intriguing a good documentary that comes out of Rockford this year, just like Minding the Gap, one of our favorite films of the year. And if Josh talking about the transcendental style doesn't really mean anything to you, I encourage you to go to our filmspotting.net interviews page and listen to our conversation with Paul Schrader, the guy who literally wrote the book about the transcendental style in film. Of course, the writer and director of another one of the best films of this year, First Reformed. That movie features... Some great acting, especially from Ethan Hawke. We're going to go from that to some really bad acting. We had Massacre Theater last week on our show where we reviewed Damien Chazelle's First Man and did our top five movie flights. We did try to find an appropriate scene to act out with those topics. Massacre Theater, of course, is where we perform a scene from a well-known film and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. If you haven't gotten around to listening to this very special Unsteady Accents in Yellow Jumpsuits edition of Massacre (laughs) Theater... Here's what you missed. Allow me to introduce you to the airlock chamber. Observe your route from this world to the next. So, little hint, Josh's pretty good Alan Rickman impersonation. <laughs> that might be throwing you off. Alan Rickman is not in this movie. It, it must be all those years of of reading the voice of Snape to the kids, the Harry Potter books, and I just I got a little Alan Rickman that comes out every so. once in a while. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, October 22nd. We will spare you any singing. It's time for the film spotting poll. And we are going to start with our new poll question before getting into the results of our Suspiria versus Halloween remakes poll. That was music, of course, from the trailer for the new Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. It stars Rami Malek as Mercury and it opens wide on November 2nd. Josh, I know you like to rip on biopics here. I like to rip on biopics, but I also like to watch biopics. Well, They're just not always very good. You especially love music. I love biopics. music biopics, and I like Queen. And based on what I've seen from the trailer, Rami Malek seems to pull off Freddie Mercury. So I actually really want to see this film. I can't say for sure. I necessarily really want to discuss it. You seem to be pretty apathetic. Yeah, you're reading my face. I am well. seeing that right. face. I wish you could okay. see that face. The Josh Larson, I really don't care face. Well, Rami Malik is the most intriguing element to me. So you could talk me into seeing it for that alone, although I'm kind of hoping a better option comes up. Well, let's talk about movies that maybe were better options in their day. We want to know what is the best music biopic performance of the past 20 years. So we recently did a poll question where we talked about musical dramas, but ones that weren't biopics. Now we're going to focus on the ones that are based on true stories. Your options for best music biopic performance of the past 20 years are. Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan in I'm Not There, Marion Cotillard as Edith Piaf in La Vie en Rose, John Cusack as Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy, Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles in Ray, Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker in Born to be Blue, Jason Mitchell as Easy e in Straight Outta Compton, and then Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash in Walk the Line. There will be the option of other for you as well. There will, and I'm not sure where I'm voting on this one now. I should correct that and say, of course, I'm voting for Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker in Born to be Blue. I love that performance, my favorite performance of a couple years back. But no one's seen that movie and no one's going to vote for it. Doesn't mean you can't vote for it. I appreciate Sam indulging me by including (laughs) it in the list of options. Do you have a clear winner there, Josh? Because actually, I think all of those performances, I've seen all of them and I think all of them are very good. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I've seen just about all of them and very good is probably the right word for it. But speaking of my sort of lack of excitement about the genre in general, I'm going to go with Kate Blanchett. 
kind of curving, kind of zigging there yeah. with the fascinating Bob Dylan and I'm Not There. I think that'll get my vote. Some notable omissions, Paul Dano's Brian Wilson and Love and Mercy, Ben Dickey as Blaze Foley in Ethan Hawke's new Blaze, Sam Riley as Joy Division frontman Ian Curtis in Control. Actually talked to Sam Riley about that performance at the Toronto Film Festival 10 or so years ago. Chadwick Boseman as James Brown in Get On Up and Jim Broadbent. You could include in Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. Please do vote now at filmspotting.net if you leave a comment, and we hope you do. Please let us know where you're listening from. The bus crashed. Michael Myers escaped. He'll return to Haddonfield, his home. I need to protect my family. You have no security system, Karen. Mom, you need help. Evil is real. Jamie Lee Curtis, who else in the trailer for the new Halloween opening this weekend? We did just come to the studio from a screening of Halloween, and we will have some thoughts on it. In just a bit. That's all I can promise. We will have some thoughts, some thoughts. But first, the results of this, as you'll soon learn, badly worded poll question. Oh, no. I thought this was the easy one. Yeah, me too. I mean, I haven't actually read any of this feedback yet, so I can't believe we managed to screw this one up. It was supposed to be our most straightforward in weeks. Which horror remake are you most looking forward to? Oh, man, are we going to get the it's not a remake, it's a reboot. They're all reheats, people. They're all reheats. Come on. Which horror remake are you most looking forward to? Is it David Gordon Green's Halloween or is it Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria, a remake of the Dario Argento classic? Josh, how did it come out? At least we have a clear winner on this, 66% for Suspiria. Max Johnson says, while I'm excited about both, the new Halloween movie is not a remake. Oh, good gracious. It's a direct sequel to the original and pretty much ignores everything past that. Just a heads up. Thanks, Max. John Dembski, Suspiria. Just saw the original Suspiria restored in 4K on the big screen, and it oozed not just color, but an intangible atmosphere. Yes, the acting and dialogue are bad, and it's more gripping than actually scary. Best to approach it like a Technicolor 70s adaptation of a non-existent graphic novel. So, to see what Guadagnino does with the material, especially after Call Me By Your Name, is frightfully exciting. All in on Suspiria. Lucas Singleton, I am really excited for Suspiria, but Halloween has been my favorite horror franchise since my mom did deem them too scary for me to watch as a child. That'll do it. She would, however, answer almost any questions I had about them, and her descriptive answers scared me more than the movies ever did. In (laughs) fact, I like this franchise so much, I will happily watch any of its awful entries except Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which is so disgusting, it's not even fun. After 40 years, I'm so excited for a potentially worthy sequel to the original. We also heard from Chad Hill. He's in Monticello, Arkansas. Carpenter's original Halloween is one of my all-time favorite horror movies, a genuine depiction of horror and purest blackest evil that still chills me to this day. This new sequel is especially intriguing to me, not just for its back-to-basics approach, which ignores all but the original film in the series, but because of the creative team behind it. Seeing David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's names attached to the script makes me especially curious just to see what these guys who aren't typically associated with horror come up with. However, I still think Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria is where I have to go, just because everything we've seen so far suggests something wholly and entirely distinct from the original and looks absolutely skin-crawlingly creepy to boot. Aaron Teachman in Washington, D.C. closes us out. I'm honestly not terribly interested in horror as a genre, but something about modern life as I experience it keeps bringing me back to these stories of fear, terror, and the grotesque. Movies like It Follows, The Witch, Get Out, Let the Right One In, The Babadook, and It Comes at Night all have far more on their minds than being scary or gory for their own sake, and the trailers for Suspiria make me think that will be true of that film as well. So I'm very excited to cringe and cower my way through it so that I can sit shattered in the theater as the credits roll, mulling over whatever it was that just happened to me and my fellow moviegoers. So the question I think that leads us to, at least leads me to, about this new Halloween, the David Gordon Green Halloween, is does it have anything else on its mind? And I think, to be very generous towards this film, it stumbles its way in the climax towards something that can be read as a horror riff on the Me Too movement where women who have suffered trauma take revenge, yes, take their lives into their own hands 
and that I could see that argument being made. I could I, do. Probably twenty years from now, there will be dissertations written on Maybe. it. Um, but that as I climax, said, though, Josh, and that shot that I know you're thinking of is maybe the only redeeming part of this film. That's exactly it. I, I don't know that that climax is, that we're led to that in many ways. No. Where it comes as a cohesive payoff to something the movie has been interested in the whole time. It's something the movie luckily found, is how i describe it. And we're dancing around it because we don't want to give it away. No, but I'm with you completely. And in fact, I think it could have absolutely done more with that or at least gotten us there without necessarily making it explicitly about these three generations of women and how they've been impacted by this trauma and where it's going to lead them. One of the homages in this film to the 78 Halloween, and there are multiple ones. I saw at least three. There are probably 30 that more astute eyes and horror fans would catch. But one of them that I actually really kind of liked was the throwback to the scene from the 78 version where we see Lori sitting in class in the corner of the classroom. The teacher, we never see her, but we just hear her droning on. She looks out the window. She sees the car. She sees Mike Myers. She looks out later and he's gone. This is mirrored exactly. Now, the granddaughter is the one who's sitting in the classroom in probably the same classroom, the same high school. It she's looks sitting, like it. Yeah, she's sitting probably in the same corner. They're also still talking and about they're fate. they're still talking about fate. They might even still be talking about the exact same material. And one of the touches I love is the teacher sounds identical. It's not just that it's a teacher talking about fate. It sounds like the exact same teacher talking about fate. And I think there's something to that in this movie about generations being affected and how some things are cyclical and certain acts are going to be repeated, certain behaviors are going to be repeated. And then when she looks out the granddaughter, she sees Lori there looking similar in some ways to the way Mike Myers looked 40 years ago. So I like that touch, not only because it was an homage, but because I thought it was going to raise this idea that the movie was actually going to explore with some interest about life being predetermined for you. The way we do get the suggestion about Judy Greer's character, who's the mother, who is the daughter of Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode and the mother of the young girl. I'm blanking on her name. Andy Matichak is the actress. The name is Allison. There you go, Allie. So the mother, Judy Greer, had her whole life planned for her by her mother. It was going to go a certain way. I had to protect you. I had to set you up to deal with a horrific world. And she chose to deviate from that. And Yes, the movie touches on it. I thought it was maybe going to do something a little more interesting with it. It's really just there as backdrop more than anything. Well, you know, even as you describe it, it makes sense and it sounds good. I mean, it, yeah. in a way, maybe the movie doesn't stumble towards it, as I said, because the ideas are there on the page. They are. You do have this three generations of women. It focuses on them. But the execution it never comes through as, again, this cohesive theme that they're exploring. I don't think the characters, even Laurie Strode here, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is is really giving her all. She's completely invested in returning to this character and offering a vision of what she might be like all these decades later. But it's not a coherent vision. Um, when we first meet her, she's, she's almost a recluse, a hermit, a, afraid. We get the impression she's afraid to even go outside. And then, as you said, suddenly she's just appearing, walking around. Mm-hmm. Then, then she has moments where she's this avenger, that, that she is very much like Linda Hamilton in T2. Yes. Or, or she's breaking down in a restaurant. And yeah, yeah the, there are some things that are at odds. There is no there's no cohesive sense of who this character is. And we get a lot of time with Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode. This is even more the case for Judy Greer and for Andy Matichak. Like their their characters should be much more crucial than than what they're able to do in the scenes that they're given. One of the things we heard in the poll feedback we were sharing just a moment ago. Someone said that I think Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie one, was so disgusting. It's just not fun. And I don't know if this one probably quite rises to that level, but it did feel more like that for me. There was something about the cleverness, the showmanship of Mike Myers in some of those scenes in the original 78 that I at least found amusing while also horrific. And here... The movie's Big Bravura sequence is probably the one that is the single take where Mm -hmm. Mike Myers gets his mask, he gets his knife, and we see him going through the neighborhood on Halloween, and he's just taking people out, basically, you know, left and right as he goes into these homes. And there's kind of a neat shot, without a doubt, 
that I think is meant to echo the beginning of Halloween 78, where it's him approaching a house from the street, and there's a woman inside. It's not his sister in this case, obviously, but it's a woman, a mother, I think, we're supposed to believe. And the way he goes away, the way he goes around the house and the way that encounter ultimately ends for me. There was that moment where I was caught up in what the camera was doing Mm -hmm. and then ultimately, I'm afraid, completely turned off by the way it all culminated. Maybe that's just because there's not enough of that horror geek in me that enjoys those type of really graphic, violent moments. Well, I think for me that is probably the standout sequence because it works like the one with Laurie outside the window as both – an homage and an inversion yes. of what was what came before. And it's really well done. When, when he looks into that window and you see his reflection mm-hmm. in it, it, incredibly creepy. Yep. And I thought the payoff was, was kind of ingenious, actually. But that entire sequence taken as a whole speaks to something that I think lessens, at least for me, the effectiveness of this Halloween. He is just an indiscriminate killer here. Right. Right. There's there's this strange framing device with, um, you know, a, a podcast team. They're doing kind of a true crime podcast about these killings. And they're kind of, I don't think it's giving too much away to say they're pretty much fodder. Um, but when they get it, so do a bunch of other people. And he's just whacking his way through the town. And That's far less interesting to me either when you talk about, as we did in our Sacred Cow review, either if you see Michael Myers as this traumatized killer who's obsessed with teenagers having sex and he is this punishment force. At least there's something there. Or if you see him as the haunted house provocateur who's staging these killings to creep people out. Or if you, as I think we both talked about, see him as a manifestation of Laurie Strode's interferes. Okay. Here – He's just a machine, like a killing machine. And that's just far less interesting to me. And we get a lot of that. We do. That was one of my few scribbled notes that I actually was able to discern. I wrote down, why is he killing them? Because I agree with you. That's one of the things I did find fascinating about Halloween 78. And you gave a lot of different options there. Even if you don't buy into any of those in particular or a combination of a few of them, you can latch on to the fact that when he comes back, And he goes to his house. He sees Lori, for whatever reason, becomes fixated on her. And then as he follows her, he encounters those other girls and he becomes obsessed with them. He's on a quest to murder those girls. Anyone else he murders is collateral as part of that quest. Yes. So I can understand that. And I think it does raise the stakes because we understand just how fixated he is on them. And we feel like their fates have been sealed a little bit. And are they going to be able to survive here He is just the pure evil that Loomis describes him as in the original film. And maybe that's always exactly what he was. But rather than making him more of a threat because he'll just take out anybody that he manages to cross paths with, I think it makes him less of one. So there's a little bit of a a, a twist. I wouldn't say that it entirely alters the plot. It just throws the main plot off. The little detour for about 15 minutes. Yes. It's got to either be something you really liked or the most ridiculous element in the film for you, I feel like. It's probably one of the more ridiculous elements okay, in the film. that's where I was too. Yeah, it feels completely tacked on or thrown in, I guess I should say, though that Doctor character does provide one of the better lines in the film that also is a reference to the original movie. And I said certain things are cyclical and things will be repeated. Certain behaviors will be repeated. I like when Laurie Strode meets the new doctor. And just as every one of us sitting in the theater, when he walked on screen at the beginning, we said, oh, he's the new Loomis. And she actually says that to him literally. Oh, you're the new Loomis. So the movie is very aware of itself in that way, though, Other than the homages, I don't think it goes too far pushing that meta stuff, and I think that's probably to its credit. But in terms of inexplicable choices and moments that happen in this film, and they often happen in horror films, I think we have come to accept some of those tropes. Certainly, we touched on there being a few in Halloween 78. I might say there's even more in this one. Oh, there's absolutely more. The the entire climax, which is somewhat a recreation, we we could just say it takes place also within a house. It's like she's learned absolutely nothing from, exactly. from that night in absolutely 78. Nothing. And here she's had decades. And we get this speaks to her character, too. We're repeatedly told how she's been preparing for this her whole life. And they want you to think that it all ends up in a way that she exactly determined, but it doesn't play out like that no. at all. There's also, you know, you, you mentioned the meta element. And I think you're right to have pushed that further and to w- been winking at us 
a lot would have not been good. But there is a weird, like, attempts at humor here and there. At least I take them as attempts at humor, but I'm not really sure. I'm especially thinking of the sheriff character played by Omar J. Dorsey wearing the cowboy hat. Every time he comes on screen, just the way he's regarding things yeah. is almost like he's watching this as a movie. He's not an officer of the law. And, and I'm, I was trying to think, is, is this supposed to be comic relief? Well, that is would this... make sense. You know, you, you make a great point. It would work if it was actually something that was carried through the rest of the film at all, but he's completely abandoned <laughs> he's as a character. Yeah, he's the only guy acting like So that. he shows up for these few little scenes where we get these moments, and then otherwise we don't get any sense of him. I wonder if actually he was kind of cut out of some Maybe. scenes that they had actually envisioned or were initially scripted. I guess, okay, for me, let me ask you this question. So the the best horror movies, at least to my mind, are exploring a specific fear. You know, something that we can identify we can identify with as well. And that's why we're scared. It's not just the gore. It's just not the jump scares. It's that we've had some sense of that feeling in our own lives. And here it's it's being ballooned on the screen in an overwhelming way. And I'm still trying to figure out what is that fear here? It goes back to a little bit to why is Michael Myers killing and all those options we talked about. Uh, I don't know what it is here. I, I can't, uh, unless you want to say, that going back to the finale, it is this idea of the fear of past trauma revisiting you. Um, but I don't feel that till the end. No, I don't really I, feel I don't it either. till the very and, end. And another one, if I was being really generous, the one thing I have been kicking around, but it's also something you don't really feel until the end of the film, is I wonder if the movie is suggesting that one of the fears could be our capacity for wanting to explain behavior, even if it can't be explained the weakness and actually i would almost always say this isn't a weakness at all but the movie kind of suggests that it is our capacity for compassion can actually be used against us if you are ever confronted with real evil and i'm thinking of a moment that happens late in the movie where i will not give anything away but i will say that it's a moment where you could argue that mike myers is actually potentially suffering and for a moment even as a viewer I felt sorry for Mike Myers. Like, I fell into the trap that all these characters in the film, from the very beginning, if you think about the podcasters, they're basically, well, we're objective here and we're just trying to tell the story. Yeah, yeah. But they clearly are trying to pursue an angle, just like even the nurse in Halloween 78 who makes the crack to Loomis like, oh, your compassion's overwhelming. Right. Like, she wants to call him a he and not an it. It's our instinct, fortunately, as humans, to want to see in someone who even does terrible things, well, but they are human, they're not a monster, and that's a good instinct to have, except when there are potentially monsters that then we actually can't accept and we're not prepared for. Well, that's definitely there in the Doctor character, played by Haluk Billionaire. Unfortunately, he's also happens to be one of the most ridiculous characters. <laughs> yes, he does. Now, if you are a fan of Halloween 78 and you heard our conversation about it earlier, there are some throwbacks in the connection between the granddaughter character to her grandmother, Lori, that are clearly playing off of the character traits that we discussed in detail about Jamie Lee Curtis's character in that movie and some of those notions of being a good girl mm -hmm. and maybe not the sexual repression or dealing with it as vividly as Laurie Strode is, but there is that same implication that she's a girl who works really hard and studies and isn't going to behave the way her friend does or even perhaps her boyfriend does. Yes. Which is another aspect of the film where this good versus evil dichotomy is brought up. Is this kid somehow inherently flawed and bad because we hear about his family past? Well, you know, there's a through line. I, I should give the movie credit there in that from the very beginning, almost all the men in this movie are uh, useless or buffoons or actively, you know, dangerous in yeah. some way. So her boyfriend turns out to be, you know, <laughs> spot the lie, a, a loser, right? <laughs> and uh, she had her friend turns out to be kind of a creep. The dad, even her dad, is kind of a buffoon, right? He's played as a buffoon. So that's something that the movie commits to early on and does relate to this ending of the women. Yes. Banding together. The biggest thing for me, I think, is that we get a line early in the film where Laurie Strode tells those podcasters that there's no need to revisit this. There's nothing to learn. And I don't know that the movie ever convinces us that there's anything to learn. And even if learning something, taking away anything, isn't the ultimate point of this film, I'm not sure it ever really justifies itself. 
didn't for me. Is anything more than nostalgia? And the ones that are the most effective rely on that nostalgia. But then, as you said, Josh, find a way to invert it. I'm actually shocked at how much time we spent on this movie. It's more time than Sam and I spent in December 2005 on the original, on the original Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> that is so much more worthy of discussion. We would love to hear your thoughts on the new Halloween, though. If you manage to see it, you can email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. It is currently playing in wide release, and that does it for what truly was our Halloween episode at filmspotting.net you can find 13 years of reviews interviews and top fives in the show archives and you can vote in the current film spotting poll we want to know what is the best music biopic performance of the last 20 years if you haven't already please also check out our sister show the next picture show it's available wherever you listen to podcasts and if you are in the need for a film spotting t-shirt or any other film spotting merch we've got that at filmspotting.net slash shop you can find us on facebook and on Twitter as well. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And one more thing for you the Film Spotting newsletter comes out each week. It's brand new. You want to get it. You can do that by visiting filmspotting.net slash episodes and sign up. Out wide this weekend, the new Halloween limited release we have here in Chicago, Beautiful Boy, a movie about a father and son dealing with the son's meth addiction. It stars Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. Free Solo, also out, a documentary about the first person to free climb Yosemite's 3,000-foot El Capitan. And The Old Man and the Gun is expanding this week, which means maybe I will finally get a chance to see that film starring Robert Redford, directed by David Lowry. Next week on the show, it will be what we're dubbing a Netflix auteurs episode. There are new films on Netflix from Tamara Jenkins, Nicole Hall Center, and Golden Brick winner Jeremy Sonier, along with Paul Greengrass, his new film, 22 July. So a couple of those films are going to be in the mix next week here on the show. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you just might find out ahead of time which of those movies we will devote our attention to. And you'll hear Josh on Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy. You'll hear me for at least a couple minutes on Frederick Wiseman's new doc, Monrovia, Indiana. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dussault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you don't mind giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. It helps us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.